0: We're in the book of Micah today, not in the, the letter to the Hebrews as usual. And to start off, let's look at the first chapter and verse of the book of Micah, Micah 1.1. 1, 1. The book of the prophet Micah begins like this. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Micah lived about 200 years after King David and about 700 years before Jesus' birth, around the same time as the more famous prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. They all overlapped a bit. At that time, God's people, his one people of Israel, were sadly divided into two warring kingdoms. There was the kingdom of Israel in the north, with the city of Samaria as its capital, and in the south, the kingdom of Judah, with Jerusalem as its capital. And as you can see on your little map, the city of Jerusalem and the temple of God within it are built on top of a hill called Mount Zion, a word we'll hear a lot in this text. The name Zion, because it's the name of that mountain, is sometimes applied to the city that's on it and even to the whole people of God because that hill was at the center of their religious life with the temple on top. Micah was from Judah, the southern kingdom, but God spoke to him concerning both kingdoms, concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Micah prophesied that Samaria would be destroyed because of Israel's sins and idolatry. And indeed, within Micah's own lifetime, Samaria was destroyed by the Assyrians around 720 BCE. That's the first date on your reference sheet there. But that was only the beginning of Micah's prophetic career. He didn't stop after the destruction of Samaria. He went on to prophesy that the same sins that had led to Israel's downfall had crept in among his own people, among the people of Judah. And that the same judgment that had been carried out against Samaria would be carried out against his own capital city, Jerusalem. The book of the prophet Jeremiah, one of Micah's contemporaries, tells us in chapter 26, that when King Hezekiah of Judah heard Micah's prophecy against Jerusalem, he feared the Lord and prayed for mercy. And the Lord relented from the disaster he had promised. It was during Hezekiah's reign that the Assyrians, after making short work of Samaria, besieged Jerusalem. But they failed to conquer it because the angel of the Lord went out into the invaders' camp and massacred them. That's the second date there on your sheet in 701. And you can read more about that story in a few different places in Scripture. In 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19, or 2 Chronicles chapter 32, or in Isaiah chapters 36 and 37, if you're interested. So crisis was averted. But not long after Hezekiah's reign, the kings of Judah once again abandoned God's way. And the promised judgment came at last. A little over a hundred years after Micah's prophecy, Micah was long dead by then, the Babylonians would do to Jerusalem what the Assyrians had done to Samaria. Tear down its fortifications and deport its people to a distant corner of their pagan empire. That's the last date on your sheet there. In 587. Based on the passage we read today, it might surprise you to hear that Micah prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem. Because in our passage, Micah seems rather to have lots of good news for Jerusalem. And indeed he does. But look back just one verse from where we started at chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12 says, Therefore, because of you, that is, because of the wicked rulers of Judah, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house, that's the temple, will become a wooded height. In chapter 3, verse 12, Micah sees Mount Zion flattened by God. In chapter 4, verse 1, he sees the exact opposite. The mountain of the house of the Lord Established as the highest of mountains and lifted up above the hills. So what's going on here? Well, the prophet is not contradicting himself, rather he's showing us two different versions of the same city, each with a different fate. First, there's Zion as it is now, in the prophet's own day. The rich and powerful of this city are seizing the ancestral lands of the poor and cheating them out of their fields and their houses. The rulers of the people, according to chapter 3 verse 2, hate good and love evil. They solicit bribes in exchange for favorable legal rulings. They eat well and live luxuriantly at the expense of those they're supposed to protect. So that Micah even compares them in chapter 3 verses 2 and 3 to cannibals, saying, they tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. That's how the rulers are treating the people. Micah says in verse 10 of that same chapter three that they build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. As is always the case, the corruption of social and economic life goes hand-in-hand with religious corruption. Those two things reinforce each other. There are plenty of prophets around in Micah's day, but they work for themselves, not for the Lord. They'll prophesy whatever you want them to prophesy for the right price. And the people only hear what they want to hear. So that when a true prophet like Micah or Isaiah or Jeremiah comes along, preaching the true word of the Lord, many say things like this. This is what Micah reports his audience saying in chapter 2, verse 6. Do not preach. One should not preach such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. And having closed their ears to the word of the true God, people are now even turning to false gods. In the words of chapter 6, verse 16, they are walking in the councils of Omri and Ahab. Omri and Ahab, the two biggest idol worshippers ever to sit on the throne of the northern kingdom. The worst sins of the northern kingdom have come to the south and have multiplied there. It's this Zion, idolatrous Zion, Zion built with blood, that the Lord promises to destroy. The mountain will be flattened, The city will become a heap of ruins, and even the temple, the Lord's own house, will be deserted and will turn into an overgrown wilderness. But then, in chapter 4, there is Zion as the prophet sees it in the latter days. In this far future Zion, all of the corruption and sin and idolatry of the present Zion has been defeated. Instead of the rich accumulating land at the expense of the poor, in this Zion, chapter 4, verse 4 says, Every man shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. In place of the present corrupt cannibalistic rulers, the Lord will himself reign and will raise up a good shepherd over his people no longer will mercenary false prophets speak lies in God's name to a congregation who only hear what they want to hear. Instead, everyone will seek the Lord's ways and his word will go out to them, not only out to the people of Judah and Israel, but to all the nations of the earth. No longer will we walk in the councils of Omri and Ahab, the idolaters, instead in verse four, excuse me, in verse 5 of chapter 4, we will walk in the name of our Lord, of the Lord our God forever and ever. This Zion will not be flattened. No, the Lord promises to raise it up higher than every other mountain to make it the center of his renewed creation and to dwell there once again with his faithful people forever. So Micah sees a present corrupt Zion and a future holy Zion. And in order to raise up the second and better version of the city, God has to destroy the first. And Micah has another way of speaking about this same reality. In the second part of our reading, we see that the whole of God's people are represented by a woman called the daughter of Zion. Daughter of Zion or you could translate it daughter Zion. The idea is not that Zion is the mother and this person is the daughter, rather the idea is that Zion herself is the daughter, the beloved but often scandalously wayward daughter of God her father. Daughter Zion represents the whole of God's people. And we see that this character, daughter Zion, is pregnant. And not only pregnant, but in the pains of her labor, she's giving birth. Her labor pains correspond to the pain that the people of God suffer as God judges and punishes their sin, as he destroys that first and corrupt Zion. But at the end of her labor pains is a birth, a birth that gives meaning to her suffering and gives her a bright hope beyond her suffering as God redeems the people from their sin and restores them to new life with him. So the plan for the remainder of this sermon is to look more closely at three aspects of daughter Zion's labor pains and at three aspects of the future hope to which all pain is leading. The first aspect of daughter Zion's labor pains is that the Lord will send the nations to conquer her. In the Old Testament, the nations refers to everybody, all the peoples of the earth who aren't the people of Israel. So this is the same people who in the New Testament are called the Gentiles. Though delayed when the angel of the Lord mercifully rescued Jerusalem from the Assyrians, this prophecy of conquest came true when the Babylonians invaded the city. The pain of that invasion and of its long aftermath was immense. The initial loss of life, the maltreatment of women by the invading soldiers, the destruction and confiscation of homes and fields, and the desperate food shortage and starvation, and the total destruction of the temple, the symbol of God's eternal presence with his people, which was looted of all its treasure and then burnt to the ground. Where was the angel of the Lord this time who had saved them from the Assyrians? Where was the Lord God himself? Not rescuing his people from invasion, as he had done before, but actually sending the invaders to punish his people with the sword. Throughout the Old Testament, we find expressions of how painful this period in Judah's history was. Perhaps that pain is at its highest concentration in the book of Lamentations in the Bible, which is just one long and graphic poem of mourning for daughter Zion, as she's humiliated before the nations. But you may also know that in the middle of the book of Lamentations, the same author who suffers and mourns the destruction of Jerusalem can affirm the pure goodness of the Lord who brought it about. In chapter 3, verse 26 of Lamentations, here's what it says. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Why? Because in verses 31 and 33, the Lord will not cast us off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. The Lord sends this painful disaster to his people, not because it pleases him to see them in pain, it doesn't, but because it is only on the other side of that pain that the people can arrive at the salvation he has prepared for them. So sure enough, Corresponding to the labor pain which Judah will have to suffer at the hands of the invading nations is Micah's vision of a totally new and different relationship between daughter Zion and the nations in the latter days. Probably the most striking feature of Micah's vision of the holy elevated Zion in chapter 4 verses 1 to 4 is that it so emphatically embraces the nations, the Gentiles the same pagan peoples who were at that time the enemies of Judah and of Israel. But when the Lord lifts up Zion, we read in verses 1 to 2 of chapter 4, peoples shall flow to it, to Zion, and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord shall go forth from Jerusalem. No longer are the nations the enemies of God and of his people. Instead, they become alongside Israel, fellow students of God's ways. The law and the word of the Lord God of Israel will no longer only be heard in Israel They will spread throughout all the earth and be not only heard, but heard with faith and obeyed. We see the result in chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. He, the Lord, shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn to make war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. When God's ways are proclaimed and obeyed throughout the whole earth, there will be an end to all war. An end to every kind of warfare between nations, but also an end to the kind of war Micah described as taking place within Judah, the war of the rich against the poor. And even an end to what James, in chapter 4, verse 1 of his New Testament letter, calls the war of your passions within you. The war between the disordered desires of our hearts. In our sinful hearts, we are constantly at war with ourselves because we desire many different and contradictory things. As James puts it just a few verses later, we are double-minded. James goes on in chapters 4 and 5 of his letter explicitly to connect that inner warfare of the heart to the outer warfare of the rich against the poor. And, of course, it's also at the root of international conflict. Because of our sinful hearts, we want what other people have for ourselves and we want what other nations and families have for our own people. But when the word of the Lord goes out into the nations and subdues the warfare of the heart, replacing our disordered and contradictory passions with the simple and pure love of God, and the desire to do His will, then, of course, we will no longer try to take what other people have for ourselves. We will no longer try to secure our own people's interests at the expense of a foreign people. Instead, walking in God's ways and submitting to His judgments, we will truly love our neighbor and our neighbor nation. And we will desire the common good that which is good for all, not only for ourselves and our people. In that day we will each sit under our own vine and under our own fig tree. I and my neighbor will each have enough, and not just enough bread and water, but fresh figs and wine, good, good food. If you're worried that that line about everyone having his or her own vine and fig tree sounds a bit antisocial, like I'll sit under my vine and mind my own business and you stay over there under your fig tree and leave me alone. Don't worry, that's not at all what this vision means. And we can borrow some light on this point from a very similar prophecy in Zechariah chapter 3 verse 10, which says this. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you, will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The vision is of a world where everyone has enough, not because everyone's fiercely protective of his own turf, my vine, my fig tree, keep out, but because all peoples and all nations love each other as neighbors, sharing a world that belongs in its entirety to the Lord God of Israel. When the word of the Lord goes out to us and purifies our hearts, each of us will see the world and its resources, its vines and its fig trees and everything else, as gifts from God, to be used as God commands, not to be hoarded. And each of us will see our neighbor, even our needy, annoying neighbor, as a gift from God, to be cherished as God commands. We've been looking at chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, but now look over to chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Here's another vision of Zion's relationship to the nations in the latter days, another vision of her bright hope. Many nations are assembled against her, planning to defile her. But little do they know, they have walked right into the Lord's trap. He has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Freshing is the process whereby the yummy grain, the bit you actually want, is separated from the husks and stalks of the plant after harvest. And the way this was done in ancient Judah and in some other places was to gather all the sheaves of grain onto a flat hard floor and then send some oxen to stomp around on it, separating the grain. So that's the image here. Daughter Zion will become like a mighty ox with bronze hooves and iron horns, stomping up and down on the nations who planned to defile her and knocking the treasure out of them so that she can offer it to the Lord. There was, I think, a partial fulfillment of this vision in 701 BCE, that second date on your sheet, when the Assyrians gathered around Jerusalem in siege but were driven away by the angel of the Lord. But it seems to me the vision points beyond that even further to a victory in which Zion perhaps plays a more active role and in which the wealth of the wicked nations is captured for the Lord. At first glance, it seems hard to reconcile this triumphant warlike vision with the peaceable vision we've just looked at. But actually for all their differences, I think both visions are pointing to the same reality to the day when the daughter of Zion no longer suffers conquest at the hands of the nations, but instead helps to bring the nations and their treasure to the service of the Lord. When the Lord defeats all those who devise evil in their hearts and thereby brings peace to all the world. Both chapter four verses one to four and verses 11 to 13, Offer hope to the people of God, that in the midst of their labor pains, something new and better is being prepared. So there's the first aspect of daughter Zion's labor pains, that the Lord will send the nations to conquer and destroy Zion. And the second aspect of her future hope, that the Lord will reign over the nations from Zion, ending war and bringing peace. Here's the second aspect of her labor pains. The Lord will send the people out of Zion and away to Babylon. Chapter 5, verse 10 begins, Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city, that is from Jerusalem, and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. Babylon. Zion will be conquered. We've already talked about that at length. But here's a new element. The people of Zion will be sent out from the city of Zion. They'll have to leave the land that the Lord promised to Abraham and Sarah, to leave the city that he gave to King David, and to leave the temple where their God dwelt among them. They will have to dwell in the open country which means a place unprotected by city walls, a place inhabited by wild animals. Even Babylon and the other walled cities of the Babylonian empire, where where they will be deported, will turn out to be like a wilderness to them. They will be strangers and wanderers there, never at home, never at rest, always longing for that which they lost. One famous and heartbreaking expression of this pain comes in Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our harps, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors required of us mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land but the Lord will not leave daughter Zion in pain forever chapter 5 verse 10 of our text continues there in Babylon there you shall be rescued there the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies there in the midst of the pain of being separated from their land From the city of Zion and from the temple of their God, the same God who sent them away will rescue them and redeem them. This is the second aspect of daughter Zion's future hope. In chapter 4 verses 6 and 7 we read, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Those whom God drove away and afflicted for a time, he will now gather in forever. The people of Zion who remained faithful to the Lord of Zion, even in the wilderness of their exile, will now be brought home and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. As it happened, about 80 years after the Babylonians took over Jerusalem, the Persians took over the Babylonian empire, just like the Babylonians had taken over the Assyrian empire before that. And the Lord moved the king of Persia to send many of the Jews who had been deported to Babylon back to their homeland. Under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Jews were able to rebuild the temple and the city walls of Jerusalem. This partial restoration of Zion was a big deal. It was a merciful gift of God to his people and an exciting and hopeful event for them. But it was not the ultimate fulfillment of these prophecies. God's people continued, even after they returned, periodically to fall away from him. And periodically they were conquered by foreign nations. The second temple, the one they rebuilt, was defiled by some people called the Seleucids and then destroyed by the Romans. Many Jews continued to live scattered and rescattered throughout the world. And even those gathered in Zion at any given time still lived under the hand of their enemies. Not only of enemy nations, though that was usually also true, but always under the hand of sin and death, the great enemies of all humanity. So the whole world became like an open country and like a Babylon to the daughter of Zion. In a sense, she remained in exile even after she had returned to her homeland. Her labor pains were not yet over. So we turn now to the third aspect of daughter Zion's labor pains. The Lord would remove the king from Zion. And the third aspect of her future hope, the Lord would restore the kingship to Zion. Now in Micah's day, the people of Judah were still ruled by the descendants of King David, to whose house the Lord had promised the throne of Judah and of Israel forever as you may remember when we read through First and 2 Samuel together last year. This promise was already a little bit in jeopardy in Micah's day, since the kingdom that God had promised to David forever had been divided, and the northerners in the kingdom of Israel were living under the rule of a king who was not a descendant of David. But after the Babylonian conquest of Judah, the promise seemed even more to be in doubt. Because the Babylonians captured the last Davidic king, Zedekiah, and killed all of his sons in front of him, and then gouged out his eyes. Some more distant ancestors of David survived, but even after they returned from Babylon, the Davidic monarchy, the throne of David, was never restored. In our text, a little bit strangely, the promise of restored kingship actually arrives before the pain of lost kingship. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 8. And you, O tower of the flock, heel of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. But this promise of restoration must have come as quite a shock to Micah's listeners. Remember, at the time Micah is prophesying, Judah still has a king in the line of David. So what's Micah talking about? The former dominion shall come? Kingship will come back to Jerusalem? What does that mean? It's as if one of our church council members walked up to you and said, you know, I really think that one day we will have a pastor again at Christ the King. You would think. Uh, wait a minute, what happened to Keith? Right? <laughs> so I think that's the effect that verse 8 must have had on Micah's listeners. This is why he follows it in verse 9 with this question. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain has seized you like a woman in labor? This is a suspenseful question. Micah's audience are waiting for him to answer it, to clarify whether indeed he meant to say what it sounds like he just said, that for a time there would be no king in Zion. And Micah resolves this open question by affirming that there is indeed good reason to cry aloud, saying in verse 10, Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. So if I'm understanding this sequence correctly, it's okay if you don't think I am, the tone of these questions is not Why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Of course there is, so relax. No, the tone is more like Why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Ah, indeed not. So groan. But again, the Lord will not leave his daughter in the pain of her labor forever. It's in this promise that the metaphor of God's people as a woman in labor unexpectedly dovetails with the promise of an actual birth. We read in chapter five, verse two, but to you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. If you were with us when we read 1 Samuel 16 about a year and a half ago, you may remember that it was to Bethlehem Ephrathah that the Lord sent the prophet Samuel to find a king to replace King Saul. Samuel was sent to a town of no particular importance, And to a family of no particular importance, the family of Jesse the Bethlehemite. And the Lord did not choose Jesse's firstborn son, or his second son, or his third son, or his fourth, fifth, sixth, or seventh sons. Instead, it was the eighth and youngest son, the teenage shepherd boy David, whom Samuel anointed king over all of Israel. It was to his descendants that the Lord would promise to give the throne forever and looking far ahead now, Micah sees another ruler coming forth from the little town of Bethlehem, another David rising out of obscurity to serve as the Lord's anointed king, as his Christ. This ruler's origin is from old. He's from ancient days. All the prophecies of Micah, and more than that, all the promises that God has made since the beginning of time will come true in this ruler. Therefore, continuing in chapter 5, verse 3, he shall give them up, that is, the Lord shall give daughter Zion over to her labor pains until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Only when this ruler is born can the labor pains end. He is the child to whom all of Zion's labor leads and for whom all of her pain is more than justified. Only when this child is born can his brothers, all of Zion's other children, all the people of God, Return from their exile. Even if they've been back in their homeland, they will only really return when this king is born. Continuing in chapter 5, verse 4 and the first part of verse 5. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. He is the one through whom the Lord will finally and forever gather together his scattered flock. He is the one who will make the name of the Lord great in all the earth, and in whom the word of the Lord will go out to all the nations. He will bring about the beautiful restored Zion in which everyone sits under his vine and invites his neighbor to a party under his fig tree. He will himself be the promised peace for his people Israel and for the whole world. The one born in Bethlehem Ephrathah is of course Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew explicitly connects the prophecy of Micah 5, verse 2, to the birth of Jesus. We don't need to look at that passage now because we'll get to enjoy it the week after next on Epiphany Sunday. For now, it's enough for us to marvel at this. That the labor pains of daughter Zion, the pain that the Lord afflicted her with in order to destroy her sin and corruption the pain of conquest, of exile, of losing her king, the pain which she endured for some 700 years. It did at last come to an end, as Mary, a daughter of Zion, at the end of her own labor in one of the outbuildings of a Bethlehem Inn, gave birth to our promised king. Daughter Zion's labor pains are over. Though, of course, not all the pain in the world is over just yet. We'll get to talk more next week about the nature of the pain that we still experience here on the other side of Jesus' birth when we look together at Revelation chapter 12. For now, let me make this brief comment. What Micah chapter 4 verse 1 calls the latter days have begun. You already know this if you are a regular here and were here when we read Hebrews 1, verse 1, which says, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. In these last days. The end of the world, strange as it sounds, has started. It started with the birth of Jesus. It just hasn't quite finished yet. The age of war, injustice, and idolatry is still here, but it is passing away. Sin and death are still around, but now that the Son has come into the world to do His Father's will, sin's fate is sealed and death's doom is sure. The Lord of Zion has sent out His word into the world. And that word made flesh is even now gathering in brothers and sisters for himself, people of every nation, Jews, Samaritans, Assyrians, Babylonians, Singaporeans, Anglo-Saxons, Arabs, Chinese, everybody. In John chapter 12, verse 32, a few days before he would be crucified, Jesus told his disciples, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. In a sense, Jesus is himself the high and holy Zion that Micah sees. His body is the house of the Lord forever, which lifted high on the cross becomes the salvation of Israel and of all nations to which all people are drawn. Jesus will finally come again in glory to make that holy city a reality, not only in his own person, but in the whole world. Amen.